Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. You'll find the notes in the bulletin, or if you're viewing online, you'll find the notes under the link um, on our website. You can print those off as well. And this morning, we will look at um, a section that we'll be looking at over two weeks, verses 15 to 21. I'll remind you a little bit of the flow of Ephesians. The book divides neatly in half, the first three chapters emphasizing what Christ has done for the glory of God on our behalf, God's purposes in His church, which is a mystery. And we get told, act after act, promise after promise, grace after grace that has been accomplished on our behalf for us. Uh, what is, dominates the first three chapters of Ephesians are indicative verbs, verbs that state what things are. Use an example I just heard someone give recently. Say, that is a chair. I'm, I'm indicating what it is. The second half of the book is dominated by imperatives, which would be something like sit in that chair. And so th- the flow is important because if we're not careful, we can view the Christian life as just an ethic, as a set of morals, as a set of do's and don'ts. And absolutely, there are some do this and don't do that. But Paul doesn't get to the ethical teaching until he lays three chapters of rich gospel foundation. It's in light of what Christ has done for us. It's in light of what God has promised to us that then we are to live. And so starting in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul began using a a metaphor that he repeats five times of walking, conducting yourself, living. And so starting in in chapter 4, verse 1, we're to walk in a worthy manner. And then we focus there on our unity and our, our maturing and growth. And then, in verse 17, we're to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And here the contrast is with our former manner of life and the manner of life that describes the godless and how we are to be different. Then in chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love, which is actually characterized by sexual purity. Then, in verse 8, we're to walk as children of light, not only distinct from the world, but actually exposing and bringing to light the things that are in the world. This morning, we begin looking at the last walk section, and it transitions into the next section of the book. It's a critical transition passage. So we're going to read it, I'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. But this last walk is what leads into the household code um, for the rest of chapter 5 and into the first uh, nine verses of chapter 6. So I'd like to begin by reading Ephesians five fifteen to 21. I think it'll take us two weeks to get through this, and then we will have a word of prayer. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see both what is in your word and the, the assessment, the evaluation, the sizing up of how we walk 
you tell us here that we are to be careful, to look carefully. Lord, let us do that self-evaluation, that inventory of our way and manner of living. Let us make the changes where they need to be made. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So this final walk, walking in wisdom, bridges to the next section. If you want to know how the rest of Ephesians goes, the, the first three chapters were doctrine primarily. Then starting in chapter 4, we get to application and imperatives. We go through five walks. This is the fifth walk. And the fifth walk is made up of three contrasts. Not this, but this. That's how I've even put them underlined in your outline. So there's the contrast of walk not as unwise, but as wise. Then not as foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And not in drunkenness, but filled with the Spirit. So there's three contrasts which illustrate how we're to walk the way we're to be careful in walking. That last contrast then gets developed even further as Paul tells us what being filled with the Spirit results in. Four participles. We're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing and making melodies to the Lord in our heart. We're giving thanks always for the, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're submitting to one another out of reverence um, for Christ. That then transitions into verse 22, emphatically. Actually, the word in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands, is absent in the Greek. It's literally just wives to your own husbands. The verb is assumed from the verse before. It's it's a good translation. It's absolutely what Paul means. My emphasis is that Paul's thought here is linear. It's developing. These aren't separate sections, but they flow into one another. And so Paul is both culminating his walk metaphor, and he's setting up the household code, because he's going to go through wives to husbands, husbands to wives, then in chapter 6, children to parents, then parents to children, then bond servants or slaves to their masters, and then slaves to their, I mean, then masters to the slaves. What's referred to as the household code. There's a couple of books where Paul goes through in that order. Um, and so that's where we're going. What I, what I want you to get is these are not distinct topics. It's not like Paul says, I'm going to talk about this ethical thing for a bit, then I'll talk about this. He's going somewhere. The, the development being we first got to understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what his purposes are, what his promises are. Then we can start living in a worthy or corresponding way. And most of this living is church living. Remember the first walk? We're focusing on unity, being unified, being humble edifying, building each other up in love. And then we're partly defined as being distinct from the world. Well, now eventually we're going to move into our homes. Paul's going to get in our business in the coming weeks. No, you know, how you structure your marriage, how you structure your home, God has things to say about that. And we'll be looking at that. So this passage then serves as a transition, this final walk, but coming out of the final walk is the actual verb that begins the next section. And here's, here's the implication. I think these three contrasts are all different ways of getting at the same thing. I don't think it's three different things as much as looking at one thing from three different angles. We're to be careful how we walk. That's the command. And we're to do it not as unwise but as wise, not as foolish but as understanding the will of the Lord, and not in drunkenness but filled with the Spirit. I think being filled with the Spirit, being wise, and understanding what the will of the Lord are, are are three three ways of looking at one reality. And then as Paul begins to describe the fruit being filled with the Spirit bears, 
The last description of four submitting to one another becomes the link to the next passage. And I think the logic is this. Further than simply being filled with the Spirit, we're to bear fruit in keeping with being filled with the Spirit. Some of the fruit is corporate. We're all to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Just one another. It's generally in the body. We're all to be making melody to the Lord with your heart. We're all to be giving thanks for everything to God the Father. We're all to be submitting to one another in reverence to Christ. And then, further being filled with the Spirit is evidenced by wives who obey their husbands as though they were Christ himself. That's the, that's the language. Obey, it's what he says. I don't write the mail. I deliver it. We'll be getting there. Husbands who are willing to suffer crucifixion in loving, giving themselves up for, and sanctifying their wives. Children who are obeying their parents. Parents and fathers who are discipling their children. And the logic is this. What does a spirit-filled wife look like? She looks like this. What's a spirit-filled husband look like? He looks like this. What's a spirit-filled child look like? They obey their parents and honor them. Because it's, it's, it flows organically. That's the flow and the movement. So I'm, we're, we're going to be getting there in the coming weeks. But that's the logic of where we're coming from. And so Paul sets all this up beginning here this week. And so we're going to go as far as we can into this. We'll finish it next week, God willing. But I want to begin now looking at Paul's exhortation. Paul's exhortation. Look carefully then how you walk. That's the head command. Um, I could have titled this the careful walk, but it wasn't as catchy. Um, Look carefully then how you walk. And again, I'll remind you, walking is daily conduct. How you live your life. What you spend your time doing. You're walking about. You're conducting life. And we're to be careful about it. We're to look then to how we walk. So the first blank here, we're getting a priority. We're getting a... Pri- Uh-oh. I will just stand still. No, I won't, but I'll try. Um, you're to look then how you walk. Now, first off, notice the then. The then. Again, in- indicating Paul is developing an organic flow of thought. Where we've just come out of is our role as children of light. Because we've been created light, because the light of the gospel has shone in our hearts, because God has made us to be light, we are to live as children of light. The nature of light... Hold on. See if this fixes anything. The nature of light is to shine, expose, and to turn other things into light, we saw last week. And he ends with, uh, with an ad- adaptation of Isaiah 62, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Because of this reality, because of everything that's come before then, be careful how you walk. So there's a priority. This is important. We all know the things we take care with and the things we don't take care with. If you were packing a parachute to skydive, you would be careful, right? Well, Paul's saying, because Christ has shown in your hearts, because you've been raised from the dead by the living God, be careful then how you walk. The other focus is not just simply on priority, but also on accuracy. Accuracy. The word for careful is used in a couple other passages. I'll read a few of them to you. Um, in in um, Matthew 2, 8, 
Herod said to the wise men, go to Bethlehem, search diligently for the child. Same word. Luke 1.3, Luke writing to Theophilus, telling Theophilus that he's aware, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. Check, check, check. Some past time. So test, this test, word is describing test. Luke's research test, test. prior to writing the Gospel of Luke. Test, test. This is the check, check, check. level One, of two. scrutiny that the wise men okay. give looking for the child Christ. So there's an emphasis on the priority. This is important and accuracy. We'll put those two together. You and I need to make it a priority to do a careful inventory of how we walk. In fact, I'll, I'll give you your application. I'll give you your homework right now. This very day, this afternoon, at lunch, do an inventory of your life. Do an inventory of your walk. And invite others to speak into that because of the danger of both flattering yourself and thinking you're doing better than you are or the danger of being too critical. Husbands, ask your wives about your daily walk. Wives, ask your husbands. Ask your friends. We good? We good? I'll kill this one. Oh, I'm running two mics. Okay, here we go. Okay, check, 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 check. We're good. All right. Got this nice wire here. Very fashionable. Okay. So your homework is to do this careful inventory. And don't just do it today. I want you to do it today just so that we don't look in the mirror, walk away forgetting what we look like. But this is something we should be doing with regularity. This is the culmination of all of the teaching previously. This is the culmination of all that Christ has done. In light of all of that, be very careful and accurate in how you walk. That, that's the instruction. And then Paul's going to move us in a certain direction. Like, what, what are you getting at, Paul? What should we be careful about? And that's where the three contrasts give us clarification. In what sphere should we be doing this accounting, this reckoning, this evaluation? Well, in the following three contrasts. That's where. So your homework assignment, do a detailed review. Do it today. Do it with someone you know. And, and, and have the courage to, to hold up your life and how you spend your time and what you do and how you speak and where you go and, and hold it up to the three contrasts Paul is about to give, okay? So we'll dive in. Contrast number one. Not as unwise, but as wise. Walk in wisdom. Now, wisdom is a huge Old Testament theme. It dominates the book of Proverbs. It, it's, it's heavily evident in the Psalms as well as many other places. And if you want a simple definition for wisdom, a working definition, I'd say something like wisdom is living with integrity in light of or in the presence of or in the face of the living God who is. It's, it's living properly in, in reality to and in front of the living God. And folly would be not doing that. But Paul, I think, is going to narrow it down somewhat. And my first instincts in doing this passage was to try to do an Old Testament survey of wisdom. But the word wisdom has already occurred in Ephesians three times. And so I think Paul is zeroing us in even further on how he wants us to live, not as unwise but as wise. We've also seen unwisdom in Ephesians. So what does it mean to be unwise? 
I'm going to suggest to you it means to be ignorant of God's plans and purposes. Go to chapter 4, verse 18, and Paul describes unbelievers. He describes our former state in that very way. Look at verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous, having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So one of the hallmarks of the unbeliever is this ignorance. They don't know what God has done. They don't know who he is. Now, he's writing to Christians, so that may be what he means when he says, don't be unwise. But I think there's another possible nuance or meaning that could be going on here as well. I think the danger for us is frequently being ignorant, being distracted, or your blank here, uncaring. Uncaring of God's plans and purposes. I I think this is described in uh, the parable of the sower. Remember the the seed that grew up among thorns, Luke 8, 14. As for that which fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So working backwards, we're to be careful, we're to prioritize with detailed accuracy the way we walk, and we're not to do that evaluation as though we were unbelieving Gentiles, as though we were the godless, as though we had the same concerns the world has. So right off the bat, when we're doing this evaluation, if where you spend your time, what you talk about, what you get excited about, what you give yourself to, is the same types of things your unbelieving neighbors do, that ain't good. You got, we got problems. Right off the bat, this contrast should be seen. We're, we're sizing up our lives, not as unwise, not ignorant of God's plans and purposes, not uncaring about them, not distracted, but as wise. So what does he mean by that? He's already talked about wisdom in Ephesians, and I think that'll help fill in exactly what he's zeroing in on. I think he's got something more specific in mind than general wisdom. I think he's got some specific wisdom. Turn back to chapter one. Three, three places wisdom language comes up in Ephesians. And I think they're instructive. To be wise is to know the following. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's start in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, and in insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So here's some, here's some wisdom. By the way, knowing the will of God is going to also factor in here in, in one of our contrasts. So we're, we're, we're in pay dirt here. We're, we're hitting our theme. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. So God revealed to his children his wise plan, which is to unite all things in Christ. So what's wisdom? Wisdom is to know that God plans ultimately, supremely in everything to unite all things in his son, to exalt his son. That's wisdom. 
walking in that would be walking in that knowledge. Okay, so now let's, let's try to apply that. You're looking at your life. You're looking at your walk. How does this factor into God's plan to exalt and unite all things in Christ? That's going to change how you live your life, where you spend your money, what you talk about, what you do. That, that's wisdom, as Paul means it. That's, that's God's wisdom. That's his plan. That's what he's doing. That's what he's about. That's his end game. Plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and on earth. Okay, so move on a little further. And if you want to write another word down next to here, here's God's ultimate goal. All of human history, in one sense, could be summarized as a proud father exalting his son. We're, we're, we get caught up in that because the means of the son's exaltation is revealing his saviorhood, his love, his humility, his willingness to suffer and die. And so he redeems us. But, but all of human history, all of history of time and space could be summed up as a proud father exalting Glorifying his son. That is the father's end game plan. Second time wisdom language shows up. Go down to verse 15 of chapter 1. I'll start with Paul's prayer. For this reason I have heard of your, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Notice, again, now just jump back for a second. Remember, the three contrasts are not as unwise, but as wise. Not um, foolish, but understanding the will of the Lord. Not drunk, but filled with the Spirit. And I suggest that these are three ways of looking at the same. Our last look at wisdom combined God's will with wisdom. Here, wisdom and the Spirit are combined. This is part of the reason why I think he's getting at the same thing. The work of wisdom in our life and the work of the Spirit in our life are very closely intertwined. That the God and Lord of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Okay? To what end? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the great working of His great might, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And so here. Wisdom is connected with God's promises and provision and work for us. The blanks here, your hope, inheritance, and his power. Wisdom is knowing and bearing in your mind the great hope to which you've been called. Getting up and planning your day in light of that hope. Wisdom is is knowing the riches of his glorious inheritance that await you. And wisdom is being aware of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you that is available for you. Walking in wisdom is walking, being mindful of those things, having those things in your mind, planning and acting accordingly. God's great purpose, he's going to glorify his son. He's going to unite all things in his son. Here I put the means. Because we have a, amazing, we have a role to play in God's great purpose. And we've got to be aware of the power that's in our Available for us. We've got to be aware of his promises. One more time, wisdom language shows up in Ephesians chapter 3 now. Let's turn over there. And you remember this section, the mystery dominates this section. Uh, from verse 1 through 13, that word mystery shows up three times. And it's the mystery of the church. That God is 
taken the Jew, taken the Gentile, and he's made a new thing. Uh, let's go back to verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So God's ultimate plan, unite all things in Christ. The means, he's going to use us. He's actually here going to use the church. God's plan is to use the church to make manifold and evident to angelic beings the wisdom of his plan. God's going to use the church to elevate and exalt Christ in the witness of angels and demons. That's, that's what he's saying. To bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God's end game to exalt, unite, glorify his son We need to be aware of his power and his promises for us. And then we realize it's through the church that this plan will become evident. Wisdom then in Ephesians is having those things in mind. Do you realize you're here on planet earth to fulfill this purpose? I mean, have you ever stopped and wondered why why does God not just bring us to heaven when we come to faith? I've, I've wondered that. I've prayed before, Lord, just take me home now. Every day that he leaves me here, I grieve his heart with my sin. Every day that he leaves me here, my heart's prone to wander and stray. Every day that he leaves me here, there's more suffering in the world. There's more suffering in my life. Why? Why leave me here? Because of his plan. Because in his wisdom, he's made his plan known to us. He's told us, hey, guys. I'm I'm set to glorify my son, to unite all things in him. And I'm set to do it through the church. That's why Paul can say, guys, be careful. Be precise in how you live your daily lives. Don't do it ignorant of these plans of God, of God's wisdom. Do it in light of God's wisdom. So as you do this evaluation, it's measuring up your life to God's ultimate goals, to God's priorities, to God's purposes. And he's doing it through his church, which means it's not just you individually, but it's us together. That's your first contrast, not as unwise, not ignorant or uncaring, but as wise. God's plan to unite all things in Christ, to know your hope, your inheritance, and his power, and God's public purpose for his unified church. That's wisdom. He then gives a tag on even further to this first contrast, saying, um, where is it, verse, making, verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time for the days are evil. Now, what does he mean by that? I I think what he means is, is this. Make full use of the time. 
We're caught up in great and momentous things. We're caught up in an eternal plan of a father glorifying his son. We are his church. He intends through us to make his wisdom known. We're caught up in these mighty and great things. The danger for you and for I is just to get distracted and let time go by, let the years slip by, just get caught up with trivialities. The word for redeem, the word, the word that's, that's translated making the best use of can also be referred to as redeem. Um, one commentator says this, the verb redeem is drawn from the commercial language of the marketplace. Its prefix denotes an intensive activity, a buying which exhausts the possibilities available. So if you're a merchant and you go in and you want to get all of the purple dye, you want to get all of the gold bars, whatever it is you're trying to get, you're trying to get all of it. You see this on the stock market exchange, right, where people are buying and selling. It seems best then to understand the expression as metaphorical, signifying to make the most of the time. Believers act wisely by snapping up every opportunity that comes along. Believers act wisely by snapping up every opportunity that comes along. That's the idea. And and really, just think about this. If, If we really believe that we will exist forever, then the... 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years you get on this earth are nothing compared to that, right? And what you and I do here and now will echo forever. Your achievements unlocked on Call of Duty probably won't. But your part in God's eternal purposes will. And we can grab up every opportunity that we get mindful of what matters or we can be uncaring distracted and we can let the times go by we're to make full use of it he gives another reason he says for the days are evil and turn back to chapter 2 what's he getting at here well what he's getting at is what he's already told us the devil is the ruler of this world the world's got a bent in direction. It's not even as though we're in a neutral territory. More like we're in a river that's moving. It's moving somewhere. It's moving towards destruction. And so if we're not active, we're going to drift downstream with the rest of this world. Remember, this is where the contrast of our former way of life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There, there is a spiritual power at work in this world. The days are evil. And it's also a reference to the fact that we're living in the last times. There's this evil age and there's the age to come. We're in this evil age. And so here, the devil rules in these last days. We, we know what's going to happen if we're slack. If you take a day off, the devil isn't. And so God, God will accomplish his plans. It's not as though God needs you and me in some sense. But rather, God will, with or without you and me, accomplish his plans. He can raise up sons of Abraham from stones if he needs to. But you and I 
have the privilege and the responsibility and the duty to participate in His plans. And we need to be mindful that there are spiritual forces at work in opposition. There is a God of this world, the Prince of the Air. He is active. And so we we need to be careful. This gets back to the priority and the accuracy. This is not something to be taken lightly. This isn't something to do on Wednesdays. This is about a way of life. The wise person bears in mind God's wisdom revealed to us, specifically in Ephesians, his ultimate purposes for the universe and reality, bearing in mind the promises and the, the resources at our availability, available for us, and realizing God intends to do this through his church. He will do this through his church. Therefore, we need to, like attentive shoppers looking for a deal, snatch up the time because we're living in contested days. The days are evil. That's the first contrast. I think we'll be able to get through the second contrast. We'll see. That's the first contrast. So, so we're to be careful how we walk, not this way, but this way. Not as unwise, but as wise. Second contrast. Not, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay? So now we actually do tap into more directly that Old Testament notion of wisdom and folly. Um, it's, it's hard to make a distinction between what he means by wise and unwise other than I think he's zeroing in on the wisdom he's mentioned in Ephesians here by talking about folly. We're opening the floodgates to all the Old Testament has to say about folly. Briefly, there's three axes of folly. They're all connected. Because remember, if, if wisdom in its grand scheme is living life rightly in front of or in reference to the living God who is, folly is the opposite. So there's theological folly. Folly is not um, amoral. It's wicked. When the Bible says foolishness or folly is bound up in the heart of the child, they're not talking about those cute, silly things they do. They're talking about the defiance and the disobedience. That type of, they're talking like Psalm 14.1, the fool says there is no God. So this theological folly. Turn to, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Let me, let me show what I mean. We're going to take a brief, brief survey of some Proverbs here. So turn your Bibles to the Proverbs. I'm not sure who's against verbs, but these are definitely Proverbs. Um, okay. Some of you may get that after the podcast. Okay. So Proverbs chapter 1. And you guys know this. This is the Iwanaverse, right? Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, it's theological. Folly is theological. I don't want to learn about who God is. I don't want to learn to fear God. I know what I need to know. Thank you very much. So now go to chapter 1, verse 20. This vivid picture of the terrible fate that awaits fools. Again, understand, biblically, we talk about a fool. We're not talking about a court jester. We're talking about a wicked, ignorant, willfully ignorant person. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, verse 20, in the marketplace. She raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out, 
At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones? We love being simple. How long will scoffers delight in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you. I'll make my words known to you. But you don't want reproof. You don't want to be instructed because fools despise wisdom and instruction. Because I've called to you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. Then they will seek me diligently, but you will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel, despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own desires. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell securely, will be at ease without dread of disaster. So when the Bible says don't be foolish, they're not saying like don't be silly, don't be goofy. Don't, don't be this person who ch- refuses to fear God, who refuses instruction, whose end is destruction. There's a theological access to um, the fool. The fool refuses to relate rightly to God, which then leads to ethical issues. Turn to Proverbs chapter 10. Consequently, it's not surprising, the fool rejects the fear of the Lord. The fool rejects to know God. The fool then lives in defiance to God. Proverbs chapter uh, 10. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. By the way, also notice this, this common fact with the fool. The fool just won't be instructed. The fool knows everything. The fool doesn't need to be told. They know. They know. And their end is destruction. 10 verse 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Fools laugh at sin. And they rent comedies that help them laugh at sin. Fools, there's an ethical aspect to folly. The fool will find sin humorous. Christ died on the cross for it, but I think it's funny, honestly. That's the fool. This is folly. Or turn to chapter 12, verses 15 to 16. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. I know what I'm doing. I don't need any help. I got it. But a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of fools is known at once, but the prudent man ignores an insult. Here's somebody who they've got it figured out. But at the end of the day, they have no control over their own spirit. They're upset. They they have no self-control. There's wickedness in folly. There's wickedness in folly. And finally, a third category, there's, there's practical foolishness. Not only is the fool theologically foolish, denying or refusing to fear God. He's ethically foolish. He laughs at sin. He, he gives full vent to his wrath. He's just not good at life in general. 
or she, I suppose, unskilled in life. Unskilled in life. Look at Proverbs 17, 2. That's not the correct reference, is it? No, it's not. We're going to move on to Proverbs 18. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. You're just having a hard time of life. If you're constantly provoking people, getting beaten, creating hostility, you're just not good at life. Everywhere you go, people don't like you. Everywhere you go, you're getting in trouble. We, we could go much, much further with this. Um, we won't go any further there. So the fool refuses to fear God, refuses ultimately to know God. Consequently, he lives in defiance to God. What God abhors and hates, he finds funny. And living in God's world that he's set up in an orderly way, he's not very good at it. He's, he's bad at living. That's the fool. And what Paul says here is, don't do that. Don't do that. So what should we do? Instead, understand what is the will of the Lord. Understand what is the will of the Lord. Well, the few minutes we have, and I've got to fill these three blanks in here. I think we can do this. Um, try to explain what that means. Now, what's interesting here is usually we talk about the will of God. But Paul doesn't say that. What he says is the will of the Lord. And in Ephesians, I gave you the references. When he, when he refers to the Lord, he's pretty exclusively talking about Jesus. So I think here what he's actually saying is, this is the will of Christ, we're to understand, which is not distinct from the will of the Father. But understand, it's not just the Father's wisdom and plan, but it's Christ's will as well that we're to understand. And, and, we, and people, we want to know what God's will is. We want to know what God's will for our life is. And it's, it's already been revealed. This isn't like, understand the will of the Lord. Does he want me to go to Iowa State? Or does he want me to go? No, that's not fundamentally what we're talking about here. It's again tied into God's purposes and God's plans. This isn't about trying to figure out, is it God's will that I go here for lunch or there for This is fundamentally about what God has already revealed. Turn, turn to Ephesians 1 again. Verse 5. These are topics Paul has already brought up. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So what's God's will for you and me? He willed us into adoption. That's part of it. Jump ahead to verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. Notice again, his will is lining up with his wisdom. Again, why I'm saying these are all getting at the same reality. God's wisdom reveals to us his will, his plan, and we're to discern what that is. Now, I think the discernment here is figuring out how my life and the choices and the things in front of me fit into his plan, fit into his will, but his will has already been revealed. The challenge for us is to, point three, embrace his will and act upon it. In him, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Understanding what the will of the Lord is, it might mean something like, how do I fit into this? His cosmic plan and purpose, his goals, his will. Life is short, folks, and it is so easy to get distracted, not even necessarily by wickedness or sin, but just by the cares of this world. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world. It's unpleasant, it's challenging, it's difficult. There's a lot going on on Facebook. You could spend hours on it. Sometimes I have spent hours on it. John, John Piper made this statement that on the day of judgment, Facebook will rise up and condemn us for our claims of not enough time to read our Bibles and pray. I just think there's some deep truth to that. But I'll close with this. We're going to have a closing song. You've probably heard the line, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I actually tracked that down. It's from an actual poem by C.T. Studd. I want to read a couple stanzas to you. I think he got this mindset, this priority, this carefulness. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays, I must, days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let me love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.